Well, that's not my subject tonight, though, so let's open to 1 John chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 12 through 14 tonight. And I'm continuing the sermon that I began last week on the subject, Always Advancing. And this is a message about growth in the Christian life. Uh, Just as a baby is born physically and begins to grow, a Christian, one who is born again, must grow from the infant stage of his Christianity into the adult stage. You know, we thank the Lord for little babies that we have in the church. Um, We need some more little babies. I know our nursery workers are getting a little bit lonely over there, and we'll be glad when we're able to uh, fill up the nursery again. But there's one thing that we don't want to see. We don't want to put little babies in the nursery and have them stay there. Uh, We want them to grow up. We want them to get big. We want them to develop because that is the natural thing that babies do. And it's really sad to see a child that doesn't develop like it should, and parents get very concerned about that. If a little baby is not growing and if it's not keeping up with all the other little children that that is its own age, uh, parents become very concerned about that. This past year, we had some friends who had a a little baby that was born with Down syndrome. And um, it was a a sweet little baby, but I was talking to my daughter the other day, and she said, the baby's over a year old now, and he can't turn over yet. He can't crawl. And you can imagine how heavy that weighs on on a parent's heart to have a little baby in that kind of condition. And if you translate that into the spiritual world, we need to be just as concerned when there are Christians that don't develop. And it has nothing at all to do with the person's physical age. A person can be born again when he's in his 60s or his 70s, and and when he is, that person is a spiritual baby. Uh, We all start out that way. And the sad part of it is, though, there are many Christians that never seem to grow. They go on years and years and years without any spiritual development. And that's what we're reading about here in this section of 1 John. It's really actually a peculiar section that's added here in consideration of what we've already talked about in the first and second chapters. But I'm going to tell you in just a moment why that John has inserted it into this particular place. So if you look in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 12, John says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, we've already looked at some very important doctrinal issues in these first two chapters. And even though that I I hopefully I've broken it down to where just about anybody can understand it, that really doesn't negate the theological importance of everything that John has said. And quite frankly, most churches would not and most pastors would not deal with the same issues that we've talked about in these first two chapters. And that's not really a boast about what we do here, but it's simply to show you that uh, to grow as a Christian, we can't stay on a steady diet of the milk of the Word. Now, when you get, start out, when you first become a child of God, that's where you need to be. You need to have the milk of the Word. But when you're growing you become very quickly dissatisfied with milk, and so you want to move on uh, to a stronger diet. I'm afraid that we have some church members that have about grown as much as they can stand to grow 
evidently. And so they become bored with all these details that we're talking about here in the Scriptures, and they really don't like this kind of study. And so what they're used to is that revved-up excitement and shouting and pulpit-pounding and the stomping preacher, and, and uh, they think that the louder that you say something, the most, more important that it must be. And so you can stand that kind of preaching for about a half hour, and it does you maybe some good while you're there listening to it. But usually, there's not much to take home with you. And so what we do here is we, we try to take a slow, um, slow approach at the Scriptures. We settle down to where we get some growth, and we develop the theme of the Scriptures in a verse-by-verse study. And I hope that you appreciate that method, because I think it's the very best method that we can use. I think that's the way the Bible was intended to be taught, that we go straight through it. Um, and I think that a departure from that way of teaching has caused a marked downturn in Bible knowledge among the average church member. So John here begins, if you remember, by just jumping into his theme. There is no salutation to the letter. There's no discussion. He just starts right up, and he starts with one of the most profound themes that you'll find in the Word of God. He speaks about the incarnation of Christ. And that is a subject that is so deep that no one has ever been able to plumb the depths of it. It's a subject that's so difficult that theologians argue and they go back and forth and they try to figure out what that's all about because we really don't understand all of the implications of that hypostatic union, that Christ is both man and God. And that's the way John started out. Then he moved on to these tests of discipleship, and he speaks about the high demands that God puts upon his people. And there's a sense in the beginning of this letter that it becomes sort of overwhelming. John is tough. Uh, He's always black and white. He makes no-nonsense statements, and his intent is to expose false professors. And these false professors will not stand the scrutiny of the Word of God, and they'll crumble under these kinds of doctrines that John is teaching. Now, at the same time, though, he knows that uh, those who do know Christ will be strengthened as they uh, understand the marks of true belief, a desire to keep the commandments as Christ commanded, and a desire to love as Christ's love will always make a Christian more more stronger in his faith. It will give him assurance, and assurance is the goal of this letter. But as he writes this particular section, there's an awareness that that goal might be missed. And so instead of strengthening Christians in the faith by what he said, he's very cautious here because he sort of slows down, he backs up, and he doesn't want these people to think that the rebukes that he gives are intended for these good church members, the ones who really do believe. And he doesn't want them uh, to think that he actually doubts their salvation. Now, he's hammering the other side of this. He goes after these false professors, and he doesn't want them for a minute to think that they're true people of God. But as I've said before, he doesn't want to mix in those who are true believers with the ones who aren't and for them to be confused about what he's trying to tell them. So he knows that they're true believers, and he knows that they could never decipher what he's saying if if they didn't uh, understand his teachings. So here we have uh, then an explanation of the pause. John stops in the middle of the discussion to make it clear. He's writing to all classes of believers, and he's telling them that no matter where you are in your Christian life, no matter what stage that you're in, you can always find assurance. God has put in these revelations in his word that comes along at each stage of your Christianity, and you can look to those and you can know that you truly are in the faith. You are a real born-again believer. Now, in the last message... 
We talked about the doctrine that covers all this, that covers spiritual growth, and that doctrine is sanctification. And so we began with the sanctifying work of God. And sanctification is the Bible doctrine that deals with this issue. It's a work that's carried on by God from the point that a person believes, from the initial inception of belief to the learning of doctrine to practical application of what you learn. And then finally, it reaches its ultimate, its final performance in the glorification of the body. And that's when we are resurrected from the grave and then our bodies join our spirits that are in heaven. There are two types of sanctification that we discussed. The first one is positional. That one is fixed at the moment of your belief. It never changes. It doesn't have any stages. It can't be any more or less than what it is. And so when you become a believer, you are sanctified, you become holy, you're set apart to God, and you are one of God's saints. And so at that moment that you believe, you're as fit for heaven as you'll ever be, in one sense, and that is if you were to die right then, never having learned another thing other than that your faith in Christ has made you a Christian, has made you saved, then you're as fit for heaven as you'll ever be. If you die right then, you'll go into the presence of God. But there is another part of sanctification that does change, and we call that progressive because it's a process that you go through. And this is when you are more conformed in your daily life according to the image of Christ. And so that's the growing process, and that's where a newborn in the faith moves through these different stages, and he moves on up in his Christian life, and he increases in his understanding and his closeness to the Lord. And as you know more about the Lord, and you know more about his word, then you become more and more appreciative of what God has done for you. I want you to think for just a minute about the kinds of things that you've learned over the past eight years in this church. Uh, things like the sovereignty of God and his election of his people. Most of you never heard that doctrine before. You hadn't been taught it. But can't, can you see now that you've been enriched by it? I mean, does that really uh, cause you to see things differently than you saw before? You have your eyes open and you end up with a greater appreciation for who God is and what God's done for you. You see, there's a marked, profound difference in understanding and appreciation between those who, who are convinced that they had some part in their salvation, as opposed to those who know they have absolutely no part in their salvation. You see, when you understand that you were completely helpless, that you had no ability to lift your head and to even ask God for mercy, when you understand that you're dead in trespasses and sin, and that it was God who took the initial step, and God who takes the middle step, and God who takes the final step for your redemption from start to finish, from eternity past to eternity future, it's all God's doing. Folks, that'll make a huge difference in your life. It makes a difference in thinking that you did something to help yourself get saved, and God couldn't save you unless you were cooperative with him. But there are many Christians that don't understand it. They miss it, and, and so they've never been taught about those things. And actually, it leaves a huge hole in their, in their Bible understanding. Now, it's just like a few weeks ago when... Uh, uh, Gary Albright told me that he was reading Acts 20:28, 20, and, and he was just struck with the uh, sense that there was another proof there of Christ's particular redemption. And you don't see things like that in the Bible unless your insight has been properly tuned, unless you're growing in the Lord. Then you start to see things like that as you read. So that's the sanctifying work of God. And that 
involves the believer in the process. Now, that first one was positional. The believer has no part in that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit alone. That's something that God does to you and God does for you, and it happens without your input. But the second one is different. This is progressive sanctification, and it does require input, input from the believer. But as we understand that, you do have to understand that a believer is different from an unbeliever in this area and and that he can now respond to God before he couldn't. Before he's dead in his trespass and sin, he has no capability of cooperating with God. But when God regenerates him, that's when he becomes able uh, to have a... to to work in his salvation, or as the Apostle Paul said, to work out his salvation. So we we get through that then, and I, I, I needed to talk about that because that's good for your understanding. And when you do understand it, that's part of the sanctifying process. You're beginning to grow. So we're ready to move on to what John actually says in the text here. Uh, the first part of all that was background information. It's necessary groundwork that we have to put down so that we understand what John's intent is and what the issues are that he's dealing with. So more particularly then, we come to the examination of verses 12 through 14, and we understand now why John puts these verses in this particular place. And we wouldn't know that unless we took time to explore it a little deeper. So time's what we're going to take. And uh, I apologize that we're not going to be able to get into all of this tonight. So we're just going to get a small part of it and continue it in a couple of more messages. So we have here an address by John to little children, fathers, and young men. And these are the stages of spiritual growth. So what we're speaking of here is spiritual growth, and we don't want to be confused about these categories that are mentioned. Uh, There are little children, there are fathers, and there are young men, but that does not categorize these people according to their physical ages. These are common stages in the growth of a Christian. And I I confess to you, even that point, uh, there's a lot of controversy about it. And uh, if you can show me a Bible passage that doesn't have some controversy from somewhere, then I'll show you one that nobody's ever read before. And there aren't any like that. So you're going to find controversy no matter where you go, and that's because the, the Bible is the most attacked book in the history of the world. It's God's Word, and so what Satan is constantly trying to do is to confuse people, to confuse our understanding of it. And so what we do is we take the Bible, and we study, and we study, and we come to our best conclusions. And sometimes we conclude wrongly, but we still come up with truth. Does that seem strange? You can conclude wrongly about a scripture and still get truth out of it? Let me, let me tell you how that happens. It's because often scriptures have secondary meanings and tertiary meanings, but when you study it out, you may not get the main meaning. So you can get truth out of the passage sometimes without getting the main meaning. So you have people that argue over things like this. Uh, I said that these are not categories of physical ages, but there are people who say they are. And you would get some truth out of that if you took that side of the question. There are some people who say, well, there are actually only two categories here. Yes, they are categories of spiritual growth. But the fact that John uses children uh, a couple of times there, that he's really only talking about two stages. Everybody is a child, they say, and then you have these other stages. You have the young man and you have the father. And so you don't have that third stage, that beginning born again, that's distinguished in this particular passage. But I don't agree with that. I, I think that we have three stages here. 
And as I said, you can get truth out of any of those positions, but you're not going to get the main truth. And that's what makes the Bible so interesting to study. And the person that concludes that all of this is boring and it really doesn't make any difference anyway, that's a person who is stunted in their spiritual growth. And they're probably the people that are sitting home watching TV tonight instead of being here. So I'm going to take the position that we are speaking of three categories of Christians. And the point that John is trying to make is that at any point in your spiritual development, a Christian can find assurance of his salvation. So you don't have to be a seasoned Christian to know that you're saved. You, you don't have to have a, a doctor's degree in theology to know that you're saved. And sometimes those things can even be confusing, and, and people that have great academic degrees can sometimes be more confused about these things than a person who's just been saved. And so we find things here that are, that, are, that are comforting. I mean, just this true fact that no matter where you are, you can have assurance that you do know the Lord. Now, tonight, I only have time uh, for the first category, and I'm not even going to finish the first category. I do have quite a bit that I want to say about this. So first, we're going to look at uh, the immature. These are the children. And as I said, we all start out that way. We're talking about this first stage of becoming a Christian. Uh, we all start out as a, as a baby. We're not full-grown adults. You know, I think of many of you that came to Christ in later years, and, and uh, you spent a lot of time without the Lord. And so when you got saved, you weren't grown-ups in the Lord. You were grown-up physically, but you were still at that baby stage. You were just beginning to understand the Word of God. And perhaps one of the things that you don't understand is how that those that have been saved a long time can become so calloused in the faith when you are so enriched at this point. You take that old, supposedly seasoned Christian who's not nearly as enthusiastic about Christ as you are, you can't understand that sometimes. I mean, you, you, you got saved, and, and you couldn't wait to tell somebody about the Lord. You got saved, and that put a spring in your steps. It put a smile on your face. It gave you desire. It gave you hunger. It gave you thirst for the things of God. And you wanted to find out more about the Christ that you embraced. And so it's hard to figure out when you're first saved, and you come to church as often as you can, and you look around you, and you find out that the long-time members aren't here. And that's a mystery. How, how can they be so ho-hum when you're so gung-ho? That's a mystery. Well, the difference in those Christians are, is that they are stagnant. They pretend that they know a lot. They think they have things figured out. But what happened is they got started in their faith, and they just barely got beyond having their umbilical cord cut. They're just, in the, it just barely in the faith, just new Christians themselves because they haven't grown. Well, thank God that we do have babes in Christ that don't know a whole lot, but they are determined that they're not going to stay that way. And so they have excitement about this. They, they want to know Christ, and they're not anxious at all to have that enthusiasm uh, to, to fade away. And they don't want it to wear out. And so these are young Christians that begin to ask questions. And the reason they ask questions, they're reading the Bible. They become interested in this. They read, they ask questions, they start climbing through all of those Bible passages, and they look at those and they begin to wonder, how does all this thing fit together? And they're anxious to figure that out. And, and so they keep on reading, they keep exploring, and they're in a hurry to get pieces to come together. 
And I understand that. When you don't understand it all and, and it's difficult for you, you want to get that knowledge as quick as you can. You want to know the Lord as quickly as you can. You want to get it as fast as you can. And so how do you correct that? Well, you think you do it by reading and more reading. You keep on reading, you keep on reading, and you know what happens? You keep, up coming, come, keep coming up with more questions. Uh, it, it takes time to get through this. And, and the more you read, the more questions you will ask. And that's the way God wants it to be. And a Christian that is continually growing never wants to outgrow that stage. Because a growing Christian is never satisfied with a certain level of Bible understanding. And that's an amazing characteristic of the Bible. As soon as you think that you have everything down and you've gotten about all that you can get, then you find out it's way deeper than you ever thought. And you just keep coming up with questions. And so we appreciate young Christians who keep reading and studying and keep asking questions. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I remember when I, would, I was teaching the Bible, I guess for probably about 25 years, and I would go in and I would sit in my study and, and I would look in the Word of God and I'd come up with questions. And so I'd go, with, go to my dad and I'd ask him. Uh, we used to take long trips together where the subject of our conversations were usually Bible doctrines and Bible passages that I needed a little bit more clarification on. And to this day, that's the thing that I miss so much about my dad being gone and going to heaven. I can't call him up. I can't ask him any questions anymore. And I need that sometimes. I need somebody to to bounce my interpretations off of. And I I need somebody to correct me sometimes. Not very often, but it happens sometimes. And after 40 years of teaching the Bible, I find that you can stump me Sometimes you ask some questions and I have to go check things out and do a little bit further study to figure out the answers to those questions. And that's the way the Bible is. A new Christian finds questions and an old Christian finds questions. And whenever you stop asking questions, it can only mean one thing. You have become complacent in your Christianity. And that doesn't mean you have to come and ask me questions. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying in your own mind. If you're reading the Word of God... It should raise questions if you're reading it right. And so that's the way it's designed. And, and, and uh, you just keep on contemplating Scripture and you keep desiring to find out more. And that's why the Wednesday night crowd is so precious. It's, it's why I appreciate all of you so much. Some people can't come, I know that. But others can come and they don't. They're stagnant. They're spiritually stunted. And many of our brand new babies in Christ are running circles around Uh, some of our older Christians. So they desire to know God more intimately. So they found their faith, and they want to find out more about Christ who saved them. So these are children, and their minds are opened up to the truth, and they aren't skeptics. They're looking to secure their knowledge in Christ. And so John writes to these people, and he says, there is a way that you know you can be secure. Uh, The fact that you desire, the fact that you search, that you hunger, that's evidence of true belief. And when that wanes and when that's no longer desirous for you, that's when you begin to doubt your salvation. Jesus had something to say about little children when he was teaching his disciples, and he gave a a great lesson through this. In Mark chapter 10, it says, And they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. 
I don't want to go through this passage and explain to you why Jesus said to bring those physically little children to him. But I want us to look there at verse number 15 where he says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall not enter therein. Now what did Jesus mean when he said you have to receive the kingdom of God as a little child? Well, we have to notice how uh, children are always open to instruction. How children are teachable. Uh, They don't have any preconceived notions about things. They don't have any prejudice towards any particular doctrine or anything that they're taught. A child is an imitator. You show show him something and he's going to act that way. and He's not going to ask any questions. You know, that's, that's one of the things that makes our little grandchildren such a delight. And we often have Aiden at our house, and it's really funny to watch him as he learns and, and as he uh, wants to imitate what grown-ups do. And you have to be careful with that because he picks up the bad habits as well as the good ones. But there are little simple things that he learns to do, and he doesn't argue that there's a better way to do them. Oh, he, has a, he has a little toolbox that he plays with at home when he comes to our house, and he has all these little tools in there, and when anything's broken, he wants to go get the toolbox and try to fix it. Well, the problem when he first got it was he didn't know how to open it. And so he sat there turning things round and round and turning it upside down and trying to figure out how he could get it open. And so I just said, well, here, bring it over here. I'll show you how to open that. And I put two fingers underneath the little flap on the toolbox and pulled it up, and it snapped open. Well, he didn't say, that's not the way you open toolboxes. You want to open a toolbox, you throw it up against the wall. <laughs> then you go over there and you stand on it and jump up and down on it. That's the way you open toolboxes. No, he didn't do that. What he did was he learned what I showed him. And now every time he go gets the toolbox, he walks over there just like this. And he <laughs> flips it up with two fingers, that little flap on the toolbox so he can open it. Well, when Jesus is speaking here about being a little child and about entering into the kingdom of God that way, he means that you have to have that simple childlike obedience. You don't undercut authority. You don't reject it because you think you have a better way. You simply obey what you're told to do. William Hendrickson says, Receiving the kingdom of God as a little child means to accept it with genuine, trustful simplicity, with unassuming humility. And then he followed that up with an illustration, a very simple one. He says, the gold pieces were piled up on the outside windowsill. Take one, the sign, said the sign. All day long, people passed by thinking, this fellow can't fool me. Evening fell, and the owner was about to remove the pile. But just before he did, a child came by, read the sign, and calmly, without the least hesitancy, took one. That's the way a newborn child in Christ acts. That's what he, what he thinks. He has a trusting nature. He's unpretentious, and he drinks in everything that he hears, and he believes without question. Now, there's a flip side of that, of course. Uh, when you first get saved, you can be led away into untruths. When my dad was first saved, he came under the uh, influence of some Wesleyan Methodist, and I shudder to think what would have happened if God hadn't diverted from him, him from that. I'd be a Methodist, and That would be bad. (laughs) But uh, this first stage of spiritual growth, that's that's what you're like, and that tells you why you don't want to stay in that stage. Now, next week, I'm going to talk to you about the good side of this. I'll save that for next week. But for now, I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, telling you about the downside of remaining a spiritual baby. You don't want to stay in this stage of spiritual development, and you don't want to stagnate at that level because there's danger there. 
You see, if my dad had stayed with those Wesleyan Methodists, then he never would have been taught the doctrines of grace. Uh, They don't teach that. They don't understand that. Wesleyans don't understand about uh, total depravity. They believe in conditional election and not unconditional. They believe in a general atonement and not particular redemption. They believe in irresistible grace rather than effectual grace. They believe in falling from grace rather than sustaining grace. In other words, except for one point, they sound pretty much like most Baptists today. But we, we hearken back, folks, we hearken back to the New Testament, to our Baptist forefathers also. And we thank the Lord for this. I thank the Lord for it, that uh, God diverted my dad from that thing. And he went to Lexington, Kentucky, and he went uh, to school and college there and was under the, uh, that was under the Ashton Avenue Baptist Church where Clarence Walker was the pastor. And if you go out there and you pick up one of the Trail of Bloods, I, I don't know for sure if we have one out on the table right now, But if you pick up the trail of blood, you can look inside of that. It was written by J.M. Carroll. And you'll notice that uh, the Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, where Clarence Walker was the pastor, who was my dad's pastor, was the first one who began to publish that little book of J.M. Carroll's. And that's the kind of Baptist that we are. So there's danger here for immature Christians because newborn babies can be easily led astray. And this is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. And that's a great verse for you to remember. Don't be like grown-ups when it comes to being hot-headed and angry. And don't be like grown-ups when it uh, comes to being prideful and hypocritical and pretentious. And don't be like grown-ups, harmful in your speech. Be like a child in all of those things. Be transparent, be meek, and be modest, and be humble. But when it comes to your understanding of the Word of God, make sure that you are a grown-up. Make sure that you act like men. Now, why do you need to keep growing? Well, Paul has another reason for it. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. So grow up so that you can defend yourself in doctrine. You keep advancing, you keep learning, you keep that desire, and hopefully you keep that forever. Because if you don't, then somebody is going to come along sometime and they're going to knock you off. They'll come along with a false doctrine and you'll follow it, you'll go right after it, because you don't know the difference between truth and error. And the other side of that is that somebody will come along with a true doctrine and they'll try to teach you the truth, but you don't know enough to discern that either. And so you won't follow truth when you hear it. That's a problem as well. So you want to be sure that you're growing and uh, not to be skeptical when, skeptical when, when true doctrine is taught to you. Now, the other day I was talking to someone who told me they were really interested in the Bible. This lady uh, said to me, she says, uh, I've been visiting a lot of different churches, and I'm really learning a lot about the Bible. I'm trying to go to all these different places and learn more. And she said, uh, I've been spending weeks and weeks now with the Jehovah Witnesses, and now I have a lot of Bible knowledge. Well, this, this lady was trying to impress me that she wasn't a novice. And so she'd been studying with the Jehovah Witnesses, and they were exactly 
what the Jehovah Witnesses are looking for. She was exactly what they want. They want that person who has no understanding, somebody who is a new Christian, somebody who doesn't know very much, and they suck them in. They put a Bible in front of them, and they start twisting scriptures, and they start running in all these different directions, and they take these people down these twisting, turning paths, and those paths never end up at the truth. And the real truth is that that person who thought that she was no longer a novice was listening to a bunch of people that only know half a dozen scriptures anyway. I mean, once you get beyond their rote answers, what somebody's told them to say, they don't know anything about the Bible. But a new Christian doesn't know that yet. And so if that doctrine is taught to them, it sounds good to them, and they don't know enough to discern the truth. Now, there's the reason why that I think that you'll find saved people in, in different denominations. Uh, they haven't yet, they, they've got enough of the essentials to know how to be saved, but they're stuck over here in a lot of error because they haven't actually been taught anything. So you take these people that end up with the Jehovah Witnesses, and uh, if a person believes Jehovah Witness doctrine, they can't be saved. You can't be saved and deny who Christ is, the deity of Christ, and think that he was a created being can't be saved and be doc- uh, believe doctrine like that. Same thing goes, it's true if, if you get sucked up into the Mormon doctrine. It's, it's the very same thing. Uh, anybody that denies the essential nature of God and the essential nature of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, those, you can't be saved believing that kind of doctrine. But people can be confused and they can you know, get enough of the essentials in some places to where they learn the truth to be saved, but then they get led astray by all these other things that are going on. So I think that there are people that are in... Uh, other denominations, and, and they've got the essentials down, but they just haven't been taught correctly. So you don't want to stay at this stage. You, know, you have to start there because uh, all Christians do. Every person that gets saved, you start there at this baby stage, but don't stay there because there's always that danger of being led away by people who don't teach the truth. And so I feel sorry for Christians that let the excitement of being a newborn Christian wane. And they go on, and, and uh, that, that excitement of knowing Christ and telling people about Christ, that they begin to lose that. I feel sorry for them. And a lot of times what they've done is they've looked at these other Christians, these old Christians who are supposed to know something, that are supposed to be, be sound in the faith and supposed to have grown, and those Christians are hard, they're of no use, uh, many times they're actually hindrances to the gospel of Christ, and new Christians will begin to follow them. So they're bad testimonies for new Christians, and, and lots of times the new Christians end up being like them. Uh, they don't know what to do, and they follow these people, they follow the example. So a new Christian learns that, that what those old, callous, hard-hearted, backslidden, shriveled-up, worthless Christians show them. And so they stop going to church on Sunday night, And then they stop going to church on Wednesday night because to them, that seems to be the natural progression for Christians. It's not that you grow. It's not more growth. The natural progression for a Christian should be complacency and hard-heartedness. And so they walk off in those footsteps. Now, folks, here's something you should be able to see. I've got a burr under my saddle about this. And uh, it's, it's the reason why that we have trouble getting enough people to do ministry in the church. It's the reason why that we have problems meeting budget, things like that. 
It's because the old-time Christians, the ones that have been around, around long enough, have, have, are not supporting the church like they should. And I don't mean just in tithes and offerings. I mean with, with, the, with the excitement and the fervor of doing something for God. And you don't want to be there. You, you want to grow up from that. You want to move on. You want to keep growing to where you learn more. So these are our members. I have a way of dealing with such folks. Uh, they're members that you have to pay attention to. And so I've got a list. And they're the ones that have the yellow marker through their name. And the deacons know what I'm talking about. The yellow marker means this person is teetering. You don't know which way they're going to go. And so you better get on them real fast to try to get them straightened up and corrected and draw them back in because you just might lose them. So you don't want to be there. Don't be a Christian that gets into that shape. Well, that's the downside of this. There is another side of being a newborn Christian. I've given you just a little bit of the good side of it, but next week we're going to come back and look at this passage and see what John says particularly to these children, to the little children in the faith. And how does he show them that they can really have assurance in their faith? We're going to talk about that next week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... Uh, your word and for the opportunity that we have to get in it, into it tonight. Lord, I just pray that you would bless your people. And uh, we're, we're thankful, Lord, that though we have a mixture of folks here of uh, different stages of their Christianity, yet we have folks that want to learn your word, uh, people that want to dedicate themselves to you to find out what the word of God really teaches. And so we know that these folks that are here are the ones that we can work with, the ones that have become a great blessing to the church, the ones who will end up being leaders, the ones who are testimonies that other people can follow. And we thank you for that, Lord, and help us that we would always be that way, always hungering and thirsting, desiring righteousness and to know more about you. Thank you for this tonight, Lord, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.